The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Power Lunch, everybody. Alongside Contessa Brewer, I'm Tyler Matheson. Coming up, OPEC surprises the market with a cut, sending oil prices higher and energy stocks up along with it. Meantime, Nasdaq pulling today after a strong recent rally in tech. We'll break down what all this means for the market. Plus, the U.S. accused China's spy balloon of collecting intelligence from sensitive military sites. Well, now Taiwan's president will visit with American politicians on U.S. soil. Where do relations with China go from here? We'll get to all that and much more. But first, to check on the markets now, you can see the Dow Jones Industrials up nearly three quarters of a percentage point. But the S&P is in the red, flattish. NASDAQ down a percent. And you've got the Russell 2000 off by half a percent. Let's get to Christina Partsinevelis for more. Hi, Christina. Hi, Contessa. Well, the Nasdaq, like you said, trending 1% lower, and this is after a very strong rally last week. It is the worst indice when compared to the S&P and the Dow. The Fed pivot, though, still a strong narrative. But I want to get to the sectors that are trending lower. Autos, the biggest lagger on the Nasdaq, driven, of course, by Tesla. It's about 7% lower now. It posted record deliveries driven by price cuts, but concerns about sales growth still remain. Then you've got EV rival Lucid down 3% as well. Uh, shares of software HR firm Paychex, that stock is trending about 3% lower. There's some mixed feelings from Wall Street. you got Barclays analysts that uh, kept an underweight rating with a price target of 109. Shares are 111 right now. And then Bank of America just downgraded the stock to hold on worries of an economic slowdown. Bank of America also downgraded payroll firm ADP to underperform, saying the stock tends to lag as unemployment starts to rise. And then lastly, you've got retail names leading the Nasdaq higher, Dollar Tree up what, 3%, Walgreens, Ross, Stores, all of those names are in the top five rankings today. It could be due to some new 13F filings that we got that show some hedge funds took some bigger positions, or it could also be a sympathy move after Macy's got an upgrade from JP Morgan. Macy's shares, 6% higher. Tyler? All right, Christina Partsinevelis, thank you very much. Now to the big surprise this morning in the markets, a production cut from OPEC Plus. Oil soaring, energy stocks going along with it. Pippa Stevens joining us now. Why'd they do it? Well, starting with just this move, which took the market completely by surprise, since no one thought this was going to happen, given that the group had previously indicated it would hold production steady despite the recent weakness in prices. Not to mention, the meeting was actually slated for today. So yesterday, the group announced a voluntary cut of more than 1 million barrels per day beginning in May. Saudi Arabia will cut output by 500,000 barrels per day, with other nations also curbing production. Additionally, Russia will extend the 500,000 barrel per day cut it announced back in March. And this latest move is on top of the 2 million barrel per day cut announced last October. Now, Saudi Arabia called it a precautionary measure aimed at supporting stability in the market. Firms including Eurasia Group said it signals OPEC Plus will defend higher prices and support Moscow. The announcement leading to big gains for crude with WTI retaking the $80 level. And energy stocks are the best group today, with producers leading those gains. Marathon Oil, APA, Conoco and Hess all sharply higher. But Nat Gas is actually going in the other direction, 
down another 5% today after posting its worst quarter on record, down more than 50% for the year. I put this in context for me. Like, how big of a deal is this in the broader uh, global picture of what we need for oil and where demand is going? Well, I think it speaks to the growing importance of OPEC and its allies and how they have spare capacity so they can really be in charge of this market, particularly since China is such a big and growing part of that. And they are closer. They have more proximity. They're increasing the relations. Saudi Arabia and China are building refineries now in China with both co-investing. And so they are, you know, using their power to wheel price action. Now, in terms of what it actually means for barrels, they have been underproducing for their quotas. So we might not actually have all these barrels coming off the market, but it's still significant. And it also means that maybe they see some demand weakness looking forward and that the market they see is actually not as strong as some people say, which is why they preemptively took this cut. Got it. Pippa, thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right, let's turn now to China. The infamous Chinese spy balloon that floated across the U.S. in early February was able to gather intelligence from several American military sites, despite President Biden's efforts to block it from doing so. So how will this impact the U.S.'s already strained relationship with China and a couple of more developments coming this week on that front. Let's uh, talk to Dennis Unkovic. He's a partner at Meyer, Unkovic and Scott and Michael O'Hanlon. He's director of foreign policy research at the Brookings Institution. Welcome to both of you, gentlemen. Uh, Mr. O'Hanlon, let me begin with you. Uh, and, and let's talk quickly about this Chinese spy satellite. Was that satellite really in and over U.S. airspace or was it in space? And don't we do fundamentally the same kind of things and gather the same kind of intelligence that the Chinese were gathering over on our military installations? Yeah, those are good questions. There is some ambiguity about who owns the air when you get up above 50, 60,000 feet. Now, I think the United States is perfectly within its rights to assert that it's our sovereign territory, but we don't have completely rock solid international legal foundation for doing that. And in any event, I think we therefore have to sort of modulate the criticism of China. I, I have no problems with President Biden having the, uh, the balloon shot down. I think that was understandable. But I also don't find it completely surprising or indicative of aggressive intent that China would try to get away with this sort of exploitation of a gray area. And more generally, I think we have to learn in the United States strategic debate how to push back against Chinese actions that we don't like without uh, demonizing them or calling them a new axis of evil, as uh, Senator Lieberman recently did in an op-ed. I think you know the rhetoric is getting a bit overheated. And this particular action, this particular incident required, I think, a firm American response, but also understanding both sides are constantly trying to exploit ambiguities in the law or opportunities for intelligence. It's just a little bit the nature of the business. Uh, you know, you know, Dennis, uh, Mr. Mr. Hallahan, uh, uh, just raise the idea axis of evil, a phrase that goes back to the Bush administration. You do certainly have now three countries, it would seem, Russia, Iran and China, uh, that are um, acting in concert against the interests of the West and the United States. True, false, what? I think the West has to accept the fact that China and Russia and to Iran to a lesser extent are now bound together very closely. So as a result, I'm not going to use that phrase, which I think is a little bit overblown, but the fact that they are no longer close to us other than economically, I think is a fact of life. So you had uh, Xi Jinping going to Russia to meet with Putin. 
Now you have the Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing-wen, coming to the United States to meet with uh, Kevin McCarthy. I'm just curious, what do you think, Michael? Is this a situation where we're going to continue to see tensions ratchet up? And explain, if you will, why Taiwan could be the linchpin in this. Uh, Thank you. First of all, I think Dennis makes a very good point, because if we think back eight, 10 years, Russia and China were working with us to apply sanctions against Iran in a way that then made possible the Iran nuclear deal. Whether you like that deal or not, the dynamic was that Russia and China worked with us at the UN Security Council to apply sanctions in a way that would be unthinkable today given the nature of relations. So I think that's an important point. On Taiwan, you know, the really fascinating question for me, given that China made such a strong reaction already last summer, and that Taiwan has presidential elections coming up in January, and China doesn't really wanna help the more nationalistic party, the DPP. Uh, Typically the DPP benefits when China is seen as over punishing Taiwan as being overly threatening. So I'm gonna be fascinated. I'm not gonna make a prediction. Sorry, I I don't feel smart enough, but I do do suggest that we all watch very astutely the Chinese reaction. My guess is that they will be upset but they will ratchet it down a half notch from what they did after the Pelosi visit. I, I guess the, the real question for our CNBC viewers is that Taiwan is pivotal to chips and circuit boards here in the United States. And you saw last week President Biden uh, using the uh, Defense Act to try and uh, lower some of these obstacles to chip production and, and try to make sure that the, no matter what happens with China, that the U.S. military has what it needs. So within that context... What do you think, Dennis? Are we looking at a situation here where we have to throw all of the eggs into the Taiwan basket because of how important they are to our own national defense? Contessa, I think it's going to be at least four years before the United States can regain as much of the chip production, particularly the five nano chip ones that are the most valuable ones in the near future. And so my concern is, is that If China is really going to put pressure on Taiwan, they're going to want to do it over the next two to three to four years. Because as you know, there are, I think, six uh, chip plants being built now in the United States and maybe more on the horizon. But those are multi, multi multi-billion dollar things that take a long time to put together. So Xi Jinping, since he got his third leg on the stool now that he controls China, in my opinion, more than Mao, What's happening is, is he knows he's on a short string in which Taiwan can still put economic pressure on the United States. Mm-hmm. The Michael, let me conclude by asking you this. The, the, a former president of Taiwan is now on uh, the mainland of China on what is being described as a non-official visit. What the hell is he doing there? Well, he is from the KMT party, which used to fight the, the communists Kuomintang. in the Civil War. That was the Kuomintang. Yes. But it is now seen as the more pro-China, pro-do-business, get-along, avoid-confrontation party, in contrast to the DPP. President Tsai is from the DPP, but she's a calm person. She's assertive at one level, but she's unlikely to make a reckless decision. However, she leaves office next year, as I mentioned after the January elections. And the the front runner to replace her, Vice President Lai, is seen as much more assertive and much more willing to perhaps push maybe not the independence agenda per se, but Mm -hmm. moving in that direction. China doesn't want him to win. So China is going to try to remind voters in Taiwan of the benefits of voting for the KMT. 
And uh, obviously, President Ma feels similarly. So it's a pretty fascinating uh, dynamic. And the elections aren't that far away. January is only mm -hmm. nine months away. Yeah, Dennis, thank you for being I with us. I might add one other quick sure. thing. President Surely. Ma was the first president present or past, I think, to visit mainland China since 1949. And he was there last week, and he was talking about a peace initiative. So clearly you've got a strong, as, as, as uh, you know, we, we just heard from Michael, competition between these right. two, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Dennis, thank you very much. Michael, uh, thank you. We didn't even get to Ukraine. I heard you, Michael, last week on the BBC. Brilliant interview about Ukraine, among other topics. We hope maybe the next time we can get to that. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Shares of Tesla falling today, even though the company reported record deliveries. Phil LeBeau joins us now. Why is that, Phil? Well, you're looking at a stock that has run up, what, 80, 85 percent? over the last three to four months. Uh, so it's under some pressure here. I think largely because people are waiting for the Q1 results. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But today is also when we got Q1 results, really for almost all of the major automakers. And when you look at it, most of the deals, most of the numbers were pretty impressive. GM, Hyundai, Honda, all reporting stronger sales in the first quarter. The outlier being Toyota down 8.8%. Not a whole lot of impact on the stocks today. Uh, as for the most part, we knew what these numbers were going to be coming into today. Today. Now let's talk about Tesla. As you mentioned, Contessa, record deliveries for the first quarter. There you go with the uh, auto stocks. Tesla, record deliveries for the first quarter of just over 422,000 vehicles. The consensus range was between 421 and 432. So roughly speaking, in line there, though, it was short of the fact set consensus at 432, up 4% compared to the fourth quarter of last year. The big question now for Tesla, what happens with margins when they report the results on April 19th? That'll be after the bell on the 19th. The, the number people are looking at, guys, about 20.5%. Anything above that is going to be viewed as good news. Anything below that, it's a different story. Finally, take a look at shares of Rivian, the company reporting Q1 deliveries and production numbers today. The, the deliveries, just under 8,000 vehicles. That is a decline compared to the fourth quarter. That decline, guys, is one reason why CFRA put a rare, strong sell on the stock. Hmm. They're moving that... Wow. Uh, Rating down to strong sell on Rivian. There you see shares trading just over fifteen dollars. What is Tesla you. doing on pricing, Phil? These days they've been they've been cutting prices. They've been putting prices back on. What? Yep. Well, as of right now, we have not seen a price action in a while. And there's two markets you want to look at, Tyler. There's not only here, which we're focused on because we're here, but China brutally competitive in China in terms of the EV market. That's mm. what people are probably more focused on because that's where you're going to see the price cuts kick in. We'll also see some of that here, but I think we're waiting for Tesla to say, okay, what do we? Get, what can we offer from the EV tax credits when they're announced on April 18th? Then you might see them decide, do I we have see. to raise prices, cut prices, et cetera? All right, Phil, thanks very much. Phil LeBeau reporting on the autos. And coming up, uh, in the high-risk, high-reward startup world, 5% returns wouldn't usually get people excited. But in 2023, one company is helping business invest their excess cash in treasury notes with 5% on the sixth month. Uh, who could blame them? That story is next. Plus, McDonald's stock, an all-time high as the company's corporate employees sit on pins and needles awaiting I haven't heard that phrase in a long time. That's a great time. one. Pins and needles awaiting potential job cuts. That's coming up on Power Lunch. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 18 minutes past the hour. Let's get a tech check with Deirdre Bosa. Hi, Deirdre. Hey, guys, you teed it up perfectly before the break. The startup world is supposed to be high risk, high reward, but it has certainly changed amid rising interest rates. And the kind of deals Mm -hmm. getting done has changed, too. And today, maybe in a sign of the times, a startup getting funded is not promising to change the world. It's just helping tech companies invest in boring treasuries, or maybe we should say relatively boring treasuries. Zamp Finance, it is a treasury management platform that partners with BNY Mellon to allow companies to invest surplus cash in U.S. Treasury bills and notes, essentially acting as a corporate treasurer, letting the startup focus on what it does best, its core operations. Now, here's why that's interesting. The implosion of SVB Bank was a wake-up call. Yes, startups, they need to innovate and disrupt, but it's also now clear that they need to think about protecting their cash against bank failures and other uncertainties. So who is backing this startup may be even more interesting. Zamp's latest $20 million round had participation from the CEOs of Uber and DoorDash, as well as Marcelo Clare, key architect of SoftBank's Vision Fund, and a former executive chairman of WeWork. In other words, these are the people who have run some of the most unprofitable tech companies or funds in recent years. They're kind of the poster children of high risk, high reward. The idea that the executives that ran these companies and funds during that low interest rate boom times, that they're now bullish on treasury management, really underlines 2023 as the era of conservative spending and cost cutting. Meanwhile, guys, another indication of the age of austerity for even the profitable mega cap tech companies. Google also still cutting, but just around the edges, snack bars. And staplers are the latest under pressure. I don't know if you saw, we have it here, Jen Elias's latest article. But even staplers, guys, staplers. are getting cut out. I, 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 d- take away my coffee. <laughs> take away Not my desk lamp. But <laughs> leave my stapler. You will pry it from my cold, dead hands. It just reminds me of that. As Charlton Heston once Remember that movie, Office Space, where the guy's going around and he's like, but my stapler. Who's got my stapler? Did you yeah. take my... I mean, that's about the stapler. That's going to be it at Google, right? That if you are cutting down on staplers, everybody's going to be searching for them. Does that... I wonder if that's going to be a problem for team morale. Stapler. <laughs> um, well... You could argue that maybe the masseuses that were cut in the last round is worse for team morale. But in all seriousness, guys, I mean, that is serious. The masseuses were cut. But in all seriousness, yes, team morale. At the other, on the other hand, though, I mean, Google has done less cuts than some of the other big tech companies. So while you may lose your stapler and your snack bar and your lunchtime masseuse, 
you might still have a job, right? Analysts, Wall Street, um, often say that maybe they you should know, be cutting more. So, back to your back to your first back to your first topic, which was the use of of T bills as a as a place yeah. for cash for corporate treasuries. And I understand it. I mean, I understand that the idea that that these companies are afraid that they may fall victim to a bank uh, issue like Silicon Valley Bank. At the same time, they most certainly have fallen victim to the idea that bankers don't want to pay much on deposits at all. And <laughs> yeah. so they're going out uh, into the Treasury market mm -hmm. where they can get uh, four percent or more on their idle cash. That's a great point, because even if you're not worried about a bank run or a bank failure, yes. this whole episode has taught these startups, okay, they're parking millions of dollars in most cases for seed rounds, latest fundraising rounds in the bank. And if you're not earning anything on that, why not put it in a short-term T-bill, right? So there was sort of this financial literacy here in the Valley that, you know, proper cash management, that's what this company does. It says, you as the founder, you don't have to worry about it. Just worry on the disruption or whatever you're trying to create. Let us handle sort of these short-term investments so at least you're earning something. Deirdre Boza, hide your stapler. See ya. <laughs> Thank you, Deirdre. Thank you, Deirdre. All right, still to come, tech not the only sector being forced to cut costs and, and take staplers. Reports that McDonald's is temporarily shutting its U.S. offices as it prepares for layoffs. That's not just a statement. You can't go to the office. What we know is next. Plus, caffeine-free and waste-free. Clearly, I'm not caffeine-free today. A war in the coffee space to reduce the amount of plastic pods in landfills. I'm all for it. This is a good thing. Yeah. That's today's Clean Start. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Bond yields lower on this first trading day of April following one of the wildest quarters for bonds in the long career, I'm told. I haven't been tracking it as closely as you been have. Been working since Rick Santelli, six years old. Why don't you tell me how this factors into your long career? Hey, I've been watching bonds since Jimmy Carter was still president. I remember the handoff with the hostages when Ronald Reagan was uh, uh, elected. So I go back a bit. And as you look at an intraday of two-year note yields and look at it at 10 o'clock Eastern, you see the way rates drop? Well, that was because ISM was weak. 46.3. Weakest since May of 2020. But here's the point. Open that chart up. Let's go all the way back to uh, 20, the end of February. And what's fascinating here is is that since the end of February, you can see the high and low for the month. The difference between a high yield low close and a low close is 130 basis points. I have never seen a month that I can remember that had a closing range of 130 basis points. Now, Paul, Paul, you can't be on the phone. We need to talk. Bye. Eric, Paul Aronson. Paul, thank you for joining me today. This is a simple question. I look at what's going on, and outside of uh, the S&Ps and NASDAQ today, blur your eyes. Today, it's the Dow. But for the most part, the three indices have been doing rather well. Would you agree? 
Yeah, it seems like we shook off the uh, regional bank scares from a few weeks ago. And Listen, we've shaken so much off, Elvis Presley would be pleased with the markets. My point is, most people I talk to say a recession's coming, but you don't seem to agree, and many people here don't seem to agree. Uh, markets have definitely rallied, but I still think we're very data-driven right now. The Fed still keeps talking about the data, and down here we're seeing a ton of interest in the April 10th expiry, which because of the holiday is the first expiration that captures the uh, non-farms report on Friday. Now, I'm sure you saw weak ISM today. Prices paid under 50. You know, if you blur your eyes and take out COVID, uh, these are some of the lowest uh, ISM headline numbers that we've had since 2009. I guess in the final analysis, can traders dance between the raindrops? If we're going to have a recession, but yet they're long, what's going to be the trigger for them? Well, we had the reflexive rally today with the, uh, the treasuries ticked up with the ISM. Stocks ticked up. We we're back, uh, sold back off the highs from today. And I think they're going to wait and see what happens. Um, the, the momentum's higher, but we get a jobs number that throws people for a loop. I one think the number. narrative one can number. change fast. Contessa, one number could make so much difference. It's, it's really quite unbelievable. Everybody better tune in Friday morning. I'll be here for that jobs report. I Tyler could test it back to I, you. Now I'm just setting I'm the alarm. I want to see. I want to see the traders dancing in between the raindrops. That's going to be some great television. Rick Santelli, thank you so much. Let's get to Morgan Brennan now for CNBC News Update. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Contessa, I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is your CNBC News update at this hour. Russian authorities have accused Ukrainian intelligence agencies for a St. Petersburg bombing that killed Russian military blogger Vladlin Tatarsky on Sunday. The blast wounded more than 30 other people. Investigators say the bomb was hidden in a statuette given to, Tar- to Tatarsky shortly before the explosion. One person has been arrested in the bombing. Malaysia's parliament approved a bill to end mandatory death penalty sentences. That could give a reprieve to many of the more than 1,300 prisoners currently on death row. Under the new law, courts can now give prison sentences of 30 to 40 years for crimes that didn't result in a fatality. And au revoir! Parisians have voted to ban four higher electric scooters from their streets. An overwhelming 89% of voters supported the measure. Many residents have cited frequent accidents and dangerous clutter on the streets for their resentment towards the scooters. The wheeled devices will disappear once current contracts expire at the end of August. Guys, back over to you. I concur. I was reading about this over the weekend, and they've had uh, you know, hundreds of deaths on these things uh, over the past couple of years. 21 million rides last year. Uh, on those scooters. And they just dump them, apparently. They dump them when they're done. It's not good. Well, the clock is ticking now. Apparently, they're going to be be leaving those beautiful city streets of Paris in the next couple of months. No more le scoot. Abiento. Abiento le scooter. Uh Morgan, we'll see at four. Okay. Thanks. Sounds good. All right. Ahead on Power Lunch. We're going to be eating Power Lunch right up until four. Markets higher. The Dow more than 200 points. Mega cap tech, the biggest contributors to the S&P's recent climb. Are the bulls right? Should you bet on growth again? We will be right back. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. A split decision on the markets today. The Dow gaining thanks to energy. But the Nasdaq, which had been the leader, is down nearly 1%. Let's get to Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. Hi, Bob. Well, we're starting the second quarter, and people who were anticipating some kind of modest sell-off, given the huge move in tech stocks, are a little disappointed this day. Although, if you're bullish, you're going to be very happy. Uh, NVIDIA, after a 90% move up, you'd think you'd see some profit-taking in the first 
uh, in the second quarter not happening. Micron's down fractionally, but Apple's been uh, flatlining all day. That's pretty remarkable given the moves. And Microsoft also only down 1%. Instead, what's under a little pressure is some of the discretionary stuff. Now, Tesla's in the t- discretionary group. That's a stock-specific story. But travel stocks have been weak all throughout the day because of the move up in energy that we saw thanks to OPEC, so Carnival, Royal Caribbean, Expedia, and the airlines like United and American also to the downside. We have, though, saw some very nice moves up in some of the cyclical names last week. That is continuing a little bit. So Caterpillar's had a nice little run. Uh, Ford and GM generally have done very well recently. GM's down today. And some of the consumer names have done well. Last week was a good week for Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble. uh, Down otherwise uh, prior to that. Home Depot also had a good week. And that trend is continuing. So that's given the bulls some hopes of broadening out. Finally, the big movers today, of course, energy stocks. ExxonMobil is only about 3% from a new high. So we'll keep an eye on that, but not a lot of big breakouts. Marathon Petroleum, one stock that is at a 52-week high. Guys, back to you. Bob Pisani, thank you very much. Our next guest recommends staying fully invested, saying now is actually might be a good time to buy growth. Let's bring in Mike Bailey, Director of Research with FBB Capital Partners. Mike, it's good to see you today. What strategy are you applying to your market investments at this stage? So uh, you're, you're absolutely right. We do want to be fully invested. I think that's point one. Uh, I think a lot of investors either get scared or, or you know, panic, et cetera, when you see these big, big swings and want to consider market timing. That's not us. I think you do want to be uh, consistently invested. So that, that's where we are. I think maybe a deeper question is, okay, you're fully invested. You're in markets. How are you going to play that? Are you going to keep riding some of the growth trade that's been working? Do you want to diversify it you know, just in case that starts to slow down? It's so a couple different angles. Generally, we are at this point splitting things sort of right down the middle. You do want to own some growth and some tech. However, what if there's a recession? What if things slow down again? You want to make sure you've got some defensives in there to offset that. Okay, so you've got Johnson & Johnson as your pick for defensive. You've got PNC Financial in the bank sector, which I I don't know if you would get pushback from that considering what's been happening in the bank situation. And Infineon, which is sort of a, what is it, cyclical semis? Tell me what right. what kind of overall strategy fits all three of those. Absolutely. So the question is, you know, what, what's going on here? What, what sort of ties all these three together? Uh, really, it would be, you know, sort of durable growth. And, and really, we do like to see a reasonable valuation. So we start at the top. Johnson Johnson, it's a good business. It's almost the opposite of the buy tech trade we've seen. So tech's been going up. Kind of boring defensive companies like J&J really taking a hit. Um, company, nothing's really going on with it. Valuations looks really attractive. So that's something you can own in defensive. Let's continue to diversify. You probably want to own some cyclicals. Regional banks definitely getting beaten up for sure. I think something like a super regional, in particular a PNC, is pretty compelling. If you like dividends, it's pushing a 5% dividend yield. I think that pays for you to wait a little bit for some of these problems to roll off. Mm. Uh, and then last piece, again, you, that diversified idea, you want to own some tech. So Infineon, a little bit off sort of the, you know, the um, front burner for most investors, foreign company. Um, so it is cyclical, the, the semiconductors they're selling. However, there's a long-term growth theme, which is really power semiconductors. So think EVs, think electrification, think renewables. A lot of that, there's a slow burn that's really going to help companies like that, such as uh, Infineon. So those are things, uh, companies we like at this point. Elaborate, Mike, if you wouldn't mind, about Johnson & Johnson, which for many, many years was the bluest of blue chips. Uh, they have the talc uh, litigation that is ongoing. They have other litigation uh, that is not insignificant. Uh, talk, talk me through that and whether this company still retains the blue chip status that it has always had or whether it is in some sense uh, uh, a highly tarnished blue chip. 
Absolutely. No, so it is certainly uh, a challenge for the company. Uh, and when you get into uh, litigation for some of these uh, big caps, can go in, in a lot of different directions. I think as we look at the company, I've, I followed it for a long time. I used to be a healthcare investor. Uh, really, they've gone through ups and downs here with litigation. I think the area that um, we would focus on is, is frankly cash flows. So if there is some worse than expected litigation that J&J has to pay for, mm-hmm. unfortunately, you know, they may not be doing as many buybacks or dividends, but they can really kind of point that uh, over towards uh, funding some type of settlements. I think that's probably unlikely that you're going to see some type of litigation that's so massive it would throw off mm-hmm. capital allocation. Uh, but it, it is a risk. Uh, I do think, though, uh, a lot of the, that litigation is linked to the consumer business. JJ spinning it off. Certainly, there could be some ongoing litigation there. But I think, at a minimum, some of that management distraction uh, moves away, and the, the core kind of drug and device business continues to grow at JJ. All right, Mike. Thank you for the explanation. We appreciate it, Mike Bailey. Thanks. Up next, coffee cleanup. Nearly 25 billion coffee pods used annually may wind up in landfill. We will take a look at one company working to create a biodegradable solution. Clean Start is next. Well, if you love coffee, you probably like at least (laughs) coffee pods because they're easier, faster, and less messy. I hate that messiness. Uh, But they're not cleaner, not when it comes to the planet. Diana Olick has more in her continuing series on climate startups. Hi, Di. Hi, Ty. Yeah, Americans alone use roughly 25 billion coffee pods per year, and the single-serve market just continues to grow. Now, some companies do offer recycling programs, like I send my pods back every month, but not everyone does that, and not everything gets recycled. Now, one startup is saying, don't recycle, just trash the pod. The single-serve coffee market has grown by 40% in just the last five years, and it keeps going. Names like Nespresso and Keurig lead the pack of competitors, but a startup called Bruvy is distinguishing itself as a clean coffee with a pod that the company claims degrades in landfills far faster than plastics because it's infused with a bioenzyme. That enables the pods to simply be thrown in the trash, and when they end up in a landfill, Uh, they start to degrade, and they degrade in a handful of years instead of, you know, the usual 500 or 1,000 years. And he says they leave no microplastics behind. While Nespresso and Keurig offer recycling programs and others like Halo, Grind, and Woken use compostable pods, Elias argues his technology saves time and effort. The Bruvy system is the most energy-efficient way without having to migrate human behavior and without having to build new infrastructure for composting or doing anything else. Plastic pod waste is one of the primary reasons some people don't like the single-serve systems, so investors see a huge opportunity in this. This market is really big. It's $8 billion in size, growing at 10% per year, which was primarily uh, driven by the pandemic, which caused a lot of people to start working from home and drinking coffee from home. In addition to Terpsy Capital, Bruvy is backed by The Merchant Club, Platinum Mile Ventures, Maroma Ventures, Cambridge SPG, and Nine Yards Capital. Total funding so far, $10.8 million. Now, make no mistake, this special plastic costs more to make, and that higher cost is, of course, passed on to the consumer. Bruvy pods cost about 15% more than the competition, but the company's founder claims people are willing to pay more for a greener cup. I don't know. Tyler, are you? So they are still going, these pods, into landfills. 
where he said they will degrade in a matter of a few years as opposed to 500 years. Uh, so the, the land, it doesn't help solve the landfill problem. Right. But his argument is that all U U.S. municipal landfills actually have a gas capture program. That is, they can bring in these gases. And some of those landfills actually turn them the methane into clean energy. So his argument is uh -huh. that he's contributing to clean energy, at least in some of these landfills that are turning it into clean energy. But they all I do see. have carbon capture programs. I see. Diana, thank you. Diana Oleg, appreciate it. Well, big tech is cutting costs, and McDonald's has uh, announced that it's planning layoffs. The stock, though, is hitting an all-time high ahead of that announcement. Kate Rogers is covering the story for us. Hi, Kate. Hey, Contessa. McDonald's set to inform corporate workers of layoffs coming early this week. That's according to an internal memo to U.S. employees viewed by CNBC. The memo says it's temporarily closing its offices through April 5th so that it can deliver these decisions virtually to workers. A person familiar with the situation said the number would be in the hundreds in terms of workers impacted by those layoffs. The news was first reported by The Wall Street Journal. The email we viewed states, quote, we want to ensure the comfort and confidentiality of our people during the notification period. The company declined to comment on this to CNBC. Now, in January, we reported job cuts were coming at the Golden Arches as the company sought to refocus and accelerate restaurant expansion. CEO Chris Kemchinski told employees at the time this was designed to innovate more quickly and efficiently. He added that certain initiatives would be halted and deprioritized, but it was not clear what those would be. At the time, Kemchinski noted the organization was siloed and he called that approach outdated. He also said the pace of restaurant openings needed to be accelerated to help capture some of that uptick in demand McDonald's has seen over the last few years, particularly during the pandemic. Uh, this is echoed in this most recent email here from HR executives at McDonald's, underscoring the need to, quote, shift from legacy mindsets to new behaviors. As you mentioned, investors seem to like the news. The stock has been trading at all time highs today. Back over to you. All right. So let me ask you here, Kate, when we're talking about uh, keeping workers at home ahead of layoffs. We were talking internally at CNBC today about the fact that often bosses want their people to come in and deliver the bad news so that there's sort of a kid glove touch to, hey, we know that this is rough and here's the resources that are available to you. Are you getting the sense that McDonald's is intentionally choosing a different strategy? Yeah, certainly. It seems different than what we've seen. I think part of the reason this is remote, it's uh, due to a busy week for travel, um, was one of the things that was noted in that memo, but also to respect the privacy of workers and not have it done in person here. I think it's important to note here, too, this is, it seems to be somewhat different than what we've seen uh, in terms of correcting some overhiring that's been done during the pandemic at some of these big tech companies. The U.S. business for McDonald's, uh, run by mostly franchisees, has been very, very strong. Analysts really kind of like this name heading into a potential downturn here. Uh, and this is going to impact hundreds of workers as they kind of refocus and hmm. remove some of those silos to expand in a more thoughtful way, it seems. All right. Kate Rogers, thanks for the reporting. Thank Energy you. stocks leading the S&P after the surprise production cut will hit one of the movers in today's three-stock lunch. Well, let's get to the three-stock lunch already. Take a look at some of the movers. Energy stocks in focus after OPEC Plus announced a surprise production cut. Chevron up 4%, General Electric also surging to a new five-year high today, and Macy's popping after J.P. Morgan upgraded the company to buy from hold for the first time since 2015. 
Here to help us trade them all is Ava Ados, Chief Operations Officer at ER Shares. Great to see you, Ava. Spill the details here on Chevron. Chevron is a buy, especially since OPEC cut production. This is helping oil stocks. And I like Chevron because they're well positioned with the European oil crisis. In fact, with their unique pipeline in Europe. And so I like their margins. They're at 15% compared to 10% for their peers. They have one third of the debt of their peers. So, so they're not over levered. And I also like their revenue growth, which is at 52%. They've made progress in both the revenue growth margins and their EBITDA. And so I think it's a good start to own in this market. But underperforming its peers recently. It is. And I think that's also a good point here, because since they have been underperforming for a long time, I think it's a it's, it's good time for a reversal here. And we might see this coming. Well, let's move on to uh, General Electric, which has had Ava quite a nice run lately. Is it time to take profits? I think so, yes. So it's a sell. Uh, we, we need to recognize that this was the most valuable company back in 2000. And when Jack Welch was running it, there was no better example of innovation and corporate growth. But when he left, the company became bureaucratic and it's really hard to reverse their, their culture now. And so, in fact, their sales, their revenues are at the same level they were 26 years ago. I think the trend is clear. I don't see things changing here. And since the stock appreciated by 50% since, their Octo- since October, I don't I think it's not a bad time to consider taking profits off the table. All right. Our final name here is Macy's. What do you think about the big retailer? That's also a sell. Both of these companies were much better picks years ago. Um, so I'm concerned with this category in general because more and for more than a decade, we have seen these big box retailers struggle since we have e-commerce now. And I don't see the trend changing. In fact, when it comes to, to, to Macy's, the, the stock price is at the same level it was back in 90. 97, so you have to go back again 26 year, years to get the same stock level. And the revenues are at the same level they were in 2007. I don't think things will change here. So that's not a, a good buy for me either. Although I do recognize that the stock will oscillate. So it could be a short-term buy and provide some short-term returns. I don't like it for the long-term though. Got it. Coming up on Closing Bell, Matt Boss, the J.P. Morgan analyst behind that call on Macy's, will be here on CNBC, so you won't want to miss that. Ava Ados, thank you so much for get, sharing your perspective with us. Clear, declarative, sell, buy. Very, Very. simple. Right, yeah. right on it. Love it. All right, coming up, uh, will U.S. energy production levels ever hit pre-pandemic levels again? We will take a look under the microscope next. Oil's a big jump. It is the story of the day, apart from the staplers being taken away from people at Google. Uh, Up 6% on OPEC's surprise production cuts. Dominic Chu is putting U.S. production under the microscope. You still have your stapler, right? The question is, is it a Boston or a swing line? Swing line. Yeah, I'm I'm more of a swing line line kind of guy. But the Boston had that nice heft to it. Uh, So so with the oil price story being very bunch of focus today, what we wanted to show you was U.S. production. Now, we can measure it in millions of barrels, you know, over the course of a year and that, that sort of thing. But one of the other ways that we used to do it back in the day was through the weekly rig counts. Remember when we oh, used to track yeah. those things? Baker Hughes, yeah, yeah. which is a big oil services company. Sullivan used to do it. He, come on. Every one o'clock on Fridays, right? That oh. was when it got released. It was a big deal. And we've kind of let it go a little by the wayside. But given the fact that production is going to be in focus with oil prices right now, we wanted to show you and viewers the context of where we currently stand with active U.S. rigs. 
that's a proxy for how much activity is going on for drilling and, and whatnot, exploration and production in, in America. You can kind of see where we are right now. It's tailed off a little bit, and we are certainly not back to where we were pre-pandemic in 2019 and 2020. And what's a concern right now is, are we going to keep on that kind of rollover trajectory lower if oil prices were to go lower? This is obviously also a proxy for not just the shale drillers out there, but everybody in general. What I want to also tell you is if you take a look at a 10-year chart yeah, for oil prices. Oh, so take price. a look going back to like 2013, 2014. You, you, a lot of viewers might remember that back then oil was already in those dollars over $100 per barrel, as you can kind of see there back in 2010. You see the sharp drop-off between 2014 going down towards 2015, yeah. right? That's where the rig count fell off. Well, that was significant because in the fall of 2014, we had at one point over 1,600 active U.S. oil rigs, not even counting nat gas, just oil rigs in this country. And when oil prices kind of bottomed out in the early part of 2016 at around $25 to $28 a barrel for U.S. benchmark WTI crude, you saw those rig counts fall precipitously. It's funny, you've just answered the question I had looking at that prior graph. If you took that back another five years, what would you see in oh, terms it, of rig it, counts? It, it, it would so, be way so they, up. They'd, be, they'd still be ramping up. But again, we hit a peak for oil around north of 1600 It was something that Halima Croft brought up in the last hour on the exchange. Oil companies and producers want to avoid kind of what they saw back in 2014 to 16 when we saw oil drop by 75% of its value. And then what do you do with production there? So there's a little bit of caution, I think, right now in the oil business with regard to drilling. I think, you know, every time you go under the microscope, I learn something. Thank oh. you, Dom. Contessa, thank you. Thank you for watching Power Lunch. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.